And the truth is, we have a sex problem, don't we? You only have to look at our very own federal parliament and you see it, don't you? And now, I wrote this part of the sermon at the start of the week and I think there may even be more to chronicle since Monday uh, than uh, what is there now. But when I wrote this on Monday, we at least knew of two alleged rapes, we knew of sex acts in political offices put on social media, we knew of sex occurring regularly in the parliamentary prayer room, we knew of prostitutes being brought to Parliament House by those who work there, we had a history of men abusing their power in both um, the major parties uh, and uh, it is rife at that very kind of peak institution of our nation there's a huge big sex problem but it doesn't of course end there does it it, it permeates right through our society we know that women uh, can't go out alone at night for fear of getting targeted by some creep we know that pornography is a massive problem in our society uh, and is uh, just, uh, its use is uh, humongous. Uh, statistics tell me that pornography websites are viewed three to four times more than Google. Think about that for a moment. Think about how many times you visit Google in a day. Not only that, but we have normalised things that ought to be called... We're so sort of desensitised to pornography as a, as a culture that we've got all this stuff that we call normal now that's actually pornography. So we've got Fifty Shades of Grey, literally a novel about a man with power entering into an abusive relationship with a young, younger woman. The movie, released at the box office, made 750 million dollars. That's quite good. And the author, E.L. James, uh, in 2013, after the book was released, she made 95 million US dollars and became the fastest selling author in US history. Not only that, uh, but if you uh, had the sorry privilege of watching the Grammys recently, uh, Literally on stage, they, two artists basically had lesbian sex and we celebrated it as female empowerment at the same time as we decried uh, other sexual problems. And, and I would say that you and I as Christians, we, we want to decry it all. And we want to say, you know what, this is actually not just their problem, the world's, but it's actually our problem too. The church, unfortunately, hasn't done much better. We all know of the uh, sad reality of the protection of pedophile priests that has occurred uh, in our church in this state. But uh, not just that. It, it seems that key Christian leaders of the past sort of 30 or 40 years are being exposed as having used their power to uh, take advantage of those under their care. So you might have heard of Ravi Zacharias. He was a famous Christian apologist and uh, he was very, very uh, uh, wise and smart and uh, really good on defending the Christian faith and he passed away 
uh, at the start of the year, and it turns, or started last year, and he tu it turns out he owned all these massage parlours and he abused the women in them, let alone the other relationships that he had as he travelled the world. Shocking. Or Bill Hybels, who during the 90s was uh, one of the kind of heroes of uh, evangelical Christian faith, who grew a church in the suburbs of Chicago, Willow Creek, uh, and wrote book after book, uh, many of which I have read about uh, growing the church, about promoting prayer, about promoting evangelism, about leading courageously. And he was forced off into an early retirement and then his whole board forced to resign after that and then the people who he'd raised up to succeed him forced to resign as well because throughout his career he'd been uh, having inappropriate relationships with women who weren't his wife and people had kind of looked over it. Lust is a problem and it doesn't matter if you're in Parliament if you're walking the streets, if you're sitting at home in your office, or if you're a member of the church, it's a problem that is everywhere. As uh, one scholar, DeYoung, says, disordered sexual desire and its damage is a serious problem. From prudes to politicians and from parishioners to working professionals, it's fair to admit that all of us find handling sexually desire fraught, sexual desire fraught with difficulty. And so, as we consider this final sin, we realise that it is indeed a big problem. Lust, uh, of course, as the, can refer to a variety of things, the, the lust for power, the lust for, for other things, but... Uh, Specifically, this vice, this deadly sin, uh, does tend to focus on lust, as we traditionally understand it, in the sexual uh, sense. The vice began uh, take, uh, with, with the word pornea, the Greek word pornea. That's how they, they referred to this vice when it began. And uh, that, of course, is the word that we get pornography from. And it's the word that is translated in the scriptures as sexual immorality. And so that's why, as we uh, look at this, we're thinking about not lust in general terms, but lust as it relates to sex. Well, Christians and sex have a bit of a funny relationship, don't they? If you walk down the street or uh, you go to work on Monday uh, and you ask your sort of uh, non-believing friend, uh, tell me what you think about Christians and sex. One, they might be like, that was a weird question. But once they got over the weird question, uh, they'd probably tell you that we were prudes. They'd probably say, we, we hate sex. They'd probably say... Uh, we want people to have less sex. These are the kind of general, uh, I think, stigmas that surround uh, the Christian and sex. But of course, I want to argue that we actually, as Christians, are the owners of sex, of good sex, and uh, we ought to be proclaiming and trumpeting it loudly 
that you should have lots of it and enjoy it the way God intended it. And in the Bible, we see that sex and desire are there right from the beginning when God creates man and woman. We read in Genesis chapter 1 that God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the bird, the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. From the very beginning, male and female created to have babies, created for sex, but not just uh, sex for procreation. Now, in the very next chapter, we see. Uh, this intimacy between man and woman was created uh, because uh, of our need for relationship and partnership. So in chapter 2, we see the story of Adam and Eve, and in uh, verse 18, God says, it is not good for the man, for Adam, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And uh, after discovering that, you know, no one else would do but this, this woman uh, who is taken from him, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And so uh, uh, Eve is created and they join together in this beautiful and perfect union. This union uh, that was uh, without uh, the effects of sin. They are completely and utterly intimate, without shame. And uh, Genesis tells us that this is, this is what marriage is picturing, this first relationship. Genesis 2.24, this, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, verse 25, and they felt no shame. The Bible's picture from the very, very beginning is of this wonderful, heterosexual, monogamous partnership for bonding, for intimacy, uh, for procreating, where uh, there is no shame, no fear. It's just a beautiful picture of which desire is, 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 is healthily expressed one for the other. And this picture of, of intimacy, of sexual intimacy, is repeated again and again, there's a whole book in the Old Testament called Song of Songs, which uh, is, you know, a favourite to roll out at youth group and laugh at because uh, it's, it's love poetry, it's explicit love poetry between uh, two lovers as they're preparing to come together and experience this kind of thing, this kind of intimacy. Unless we think it's an Old Testament picture, Jesus himself reaffirms this picture of of the beauty of desire for man for woman, woman for man. He says in Matthew 19, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, he said. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He, uh, there, uh, referring to that beautiful picture we've already seen in the opening chapters of the Scriptures. And Paul himself, as well, in Ephesians 5, again, talks about this beautiful, deep uh, union of uh, the one fleshness coming together of man and woman uh, in marriage and their love and their uh, desire to work together as in partnership. What we see when we take a holistic view of the scriptures from start to end is that human beings are created as sexual beings. That sexual desire is God's good gift to us, that it was created by God for us to use, to enjoy uh, in its proper place, in the marriage relationship between man and woman. But of course, because it's sort of so intrinsically part of us, it is a strong desire. And it's a desire that can be mastered. Of course, Jesus masters it. He he doesn't get married. He doesn't experience fulfillment of the desire. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you can, you shouldn't get married because uh, if, if, the, if you're not overcome by the desire, if you can master it, that the celibate life is a, is a good life and one that allows you to focus on other things like the spreading of the gospel without being distracted by the complexities of, of, of this partnered life. It's a desire which is so strong that it can be so easily disordered and can so quickly produce all sorts of sinful behaviour, the kind of behaviour that we've already talked about at the start of this sermon. Now, my experience has been that the topic of lust, of sex, of its place in the life of the Christian is a topic that uh, we like to cover off in youth group uh, and then we, we don't touch it again for the rest of our lives. We sort of think, how do I navigate puberty when, I've got, when, the, when the desires are pumping hard and then by the time I've got to sort of 25, I'm meant to have sorted it out. And I think that means that we, we have a very uh, sort of, we, we answer very different questions when we're talking to 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds than we do when, when we're talking to, to, to more developed adults. When we talk to puberty-filled uh, 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 teenagers and young adults, the conversation around lust and desire and sex becomes uh, and can become very much around the do's and don'ts of certain behaviours. Where's the line that we should or shouldn't cross? And of course, there's a time and a place for that. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, tells us that we ought to flee from sexual immorality. He says, 
All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. It's true that how we act with our bodies is a physical uh, expression of our worship of God. But today, I don't want to get stuck into the nitty-gritties of can you kiss your girlfriend or, uh, you know, all all these sorts of things that I might have done in my former life as a youth pastor. I want to say today, as we think of lust as a capital vice, as a deadly sin, that we want to go deeper than uh, its, its wrong behaviour, but we want to think about how it, how it has our, shapes our hearts, how it is a disordered love. Because, of course, lust, like all the capital vices, are, are an invitation. They're an invitation for us to do the deeper and harder work of not just stopping bad behaviour, oh, I should eat a little less, or I should like want a little bit, I should try and give away more money or something because I'm not greedy. No, they're an invitation to think about what's going on in our hearts as we relate to money or as we relate to food or as we express our sexuality. The vices are an invitation to do the deeper and the harder work of shaping our hearts away from sin and towards God. Sexual desire and lust, uh, they are a problem of the heart. Jesus knew this, right? That's why he says in Matthew 5, 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not any act that's the problem, it's what's going on in here. Lust is a heart problem. Lust is a problem because it dims our view of beauty, it damages our ability to love, it robs us of the wonderful picture of intimacy and, uh, and perfection that God has pictured before us in the scriptures, in the uh, relationship that Adam and Eve had in the garden. Lust reduces that, all of that, that comes with that, that beautiful relationship and the love that is expressed through, through uh, sex and intimacy, lust downgrades it all. It downgrades all the goodness of, of sex to the lowest common denominator, the physical. To having a good feeling. When lust rules our hearts, there is no account for how our desire, our sexual desire, and how we express that can be expressed in the familiarity, warmth, vulnerability, and intimacy that God created it for. Joseph Piper says, lust wants an impersonal it, while proper desire turns us with delight to a unique beloved person. Lust is a problem, lust is a vice because it doesn't honour us as whole people created in the image 
of God, it reduces us to objects from which to gain pleasure. Lust is indeed a cheap substitute for love. It substitutes the physical pleasure for the fullness of human experience. Because we are not just physical beings who need certain needs met, like our stomach's full or our desire for uh, connection met. We have spiritual and social dimensions as well as physical. Problem with lust is it's, uh, like many of the other sins, uh, simply another way that we try to take things in our own hands, engineer our own happiness, doing so with little thought for the uh, relationships that we have, the people that have been placed in our lives, and certainly doing so without any regard for who God is and how he's created us to live. we will never find true fulfilment following the path of lust, which makes our life about, my life about me, your life about you. Instead, we need to make life about loving God and loving our neighbour. And in doing that, we become people who don't use others for self-gratification, but rather are self-givers, who love sacrificially, who are able to trust one another, who are vulnerable with one another, who are humble together. And so we can see how lust, when it controls our hearts, uh, it, it affects our relationships because we become people who view others as objects. But I think one of the terrible things about this sin is that Though it is, a pro it is a problem for each of us and our hearts, lust is, has become sort of so pervasive that uh, it, it exists in the society all around. It has pervaded our culture. Let me read to you from another scholar. A society that has normalised the habitual indulgence of self-serving sexual pleasure in general hampers healthy relationships with friends, co-workers and future spouses. It makes a celibate life or season of abstinence so hard that we now consider such commitments impossible to ask of people and that's before we consider lust spiritual effects on our ability to recognise and receive the love of God. See, it's not just that lust has invaded our hearts, it's it's invaded the society in which we live. And our society tells us day after day after day that the most important thing in your life is your ability to have sex, to get sexual pleasure. And if you're not, or if someone tells you that you can't get that, or you shouldn't have that, or you can't do it the way you want to do it, as long as the other person's cool with it, then that person's evil and bad and wrong. Because you getting what you need is what matters. 
and then we wonder why there's all these problems in our society when people getting what they want has, is going all sorts of bad ways. As uh, some of the great scholars of old have reflected on this, people like Aquinas and Pope Gregory note that lust leads to something they described as the blindness of mind. That is, uh, when lust takes over our hearts and our minds, it, it reduces us uh, and makes us unable to recognise and appreciate anything higher than the simple pleasure of the flesh. And I would say how true that is of our society that has become so infected with this sin. But let's not just blame them, how true it can be of us and our hearts if we've become infected by this. When lust fills our minds and our hearts, spiritual goods go dark. And as a result, we pursue pursue bodily pleasures with even greater energy as if they were the sum total of all available happiness. Lust is a big problem. And perhaps for some of you, it's a real problem in your life right now. And so if this is your struggle, what do you do about it? Well, Aquinas has some helpful advice. He notes first that lust usually begins as a sin of weakness, not a sin of malice. What does he mean by that? He means that the, 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 because we have this sort of inbuilt desire there from creation for this connection, that uh, the, the, the passion that this can arouse in us is strong and it's easy to get caught up in strong passions, perhaps because of loneliness, perhaps because we uh, are young and we haven't understood the, the power that these passions have. It's easy to get caught up in the passion of desire, of lust, and it's difficult to control those desires. But what he says is, we've got to be careful that we don't make it a habit. The desires might be there, but the real problem comes when we give in to the desire and we give in to the desire again and again and again and again. And then what we find is we've got a real big problem on our hands. If lust is your struggle... Let me say to you today that there is freedom in the name of Jesus. It's a hard and horrible sin with which to battle. But if you're struggling with it, it's an invitation to do the hard work of thinking about what's truly going on in your heart. Because lust ultimately, I think, shows us a heart that feels starved of love. That's what the desire exists for, to bring connection. And so, 
when we've reduced it down to that physical act and we've given into the passion and we've formed an unhelpful habit. It's a horrible thing and it's hard to fight against, but what's happened is we've looked for love in the wrong places. Which is why, if you are struggling, it's so effective to overcome this problem by telling someone and having them experience and and having the experience of being loved by those people. Let us as a community help you and in that experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lust is a problem that grows in the darkness, in the, in, the, in the quietness of night by ourselves. It's a problem that is overcome in the light and fellowship of love and community and fellowship with God. And so, share your struggle and then let us help you to build good habits because it was passion and then bad habit and then bad decision and then bad decision which built a habit which has led you to the place however far down that rabbit hole you've got and so it will be love of community and new habits that will bring you back out and help you master the passion and there are all sorts of things you can use computer monitoring apps spiritual disciplines i can talk to you more about those things uh, afterwards if you would like But as we build new habits, as we learn to master the desire, we will form hearts that love what is beautiful. You remember I read from 1 Corinthians 6 before, where Paul tells us to flee from sexual immorality. We need to do that, 100%. But what do we flee to? Well, I think we take the words of Paul in Philippians 4, 8, where he tells us, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We don't just run away from lust to nothingness. We run away from lust to Jesus, to his truth to his righteousness, to his purity, to his loveliness, to his uh, uh, joy and admiration, to his burden which is easy and light, and to the humble king who shows us his great love for us in going to the cross that you know you deserve. The one who has struggled in silence with lust forever they know they deserve to be on the cross but jesus went there even for you because he loves you so flee sexual immorality and run to the good and loveliness that is jesus christ and him crucified for you well I felt there was one more thing that 
I needed one more person I needed to address as we uh, thought about lust. And that is, uh, in our society and in our nation, the victim. Because the thing about lust is it does reduce individuals to objects with which uh, one seeks personal gratification at another's expense. And as we've seen, for lovely young women like Brittany Higgins, or perhaps for someone here today, you can very easily become a victim of someone else's disordered heart. And it is a horrible, tragic and wrong thing. And what would I say to the victim? It's hard for me to know because I am not one. But this is what I begin to say to you. That if you're a victim of someone's sexual desire gone wrong, that what they have done to you is not what defines you. But that who God has created you to be does. And that sometimes it's hard to believe that these things are true, that, that what God says about you is true, especially when you've experienced deep hurt and shame. But you don't need to feel any of those things in Christ. For you are created in the image of God. You are built for relationship, primarily with God, but also with other human beings and it ought to be expressed in a good, godly, beautiful way. Just as the one who struggles with lust needs to find their rest in God's love and needs to repent of their sins and face the consequences and turn to Christ, I want to encourage you if you're a victim to find rest in God's love and to know that you are loved by God and not defined by others and that you were created not to be used as an object but to be an adored image bearer of God. Christ weeps at your pain. And he doesn't want you to be alone. He's reaching out his hand today and calling you his beautiful child to experience his love, his purity, his peace. And he wants that for us all. Amen.